Psalm 127, we find this described, titled maybe in your Bible, uh, Unless the Lord Builds the House. And I think that, uh, you know, that is a good, a good title for what is being described here. But we also get a little bit more insight into this as we hear of the type of psalm this is. Where in your Bibles it may say, uh, like it does in mine, a song of ascents of Solomon. So this uh, particular psalm was written by Solomon, who was the son of David the king. Uh, And so we find uh, Solomon is the writer of this. Solomon also would go on to become king. But we see that this psalm is marked out as not a psalm of thanksgiving or uh, a song of praise or a song of uh, lamentation, but rather a song of ascents. And, And I think when you consider the context of what that means... Uh, it gives us a little bit more insight into our text this morning. Uh, for those who are reading this, this type of psalm that this is, is it's designed uh, to be sung as you would be making your ascent from the valley to Jerusalem. Uh, around this time of year, actually, in, in the fall, uh, we find that the many pilgrims would make their way to uh, the city of Jerusalem for to celebrate the uh, Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, whatever you want to call it. But this was a feast that they often celebrated in the uh, in the fall that remarked upon God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. When they were back at the Exodus and God had rescued them from Egypt, he had saved them from uh, Pharaoh's uh, hand and saved them from the bondage of slavery. He rescued them and then they went out and they uh, were traveling in the wilderness, uh, you know, for many years. And in that time, they lived in these tents and it was God who sustained them every single day. They had uh, no one to rely on but the Lord to provide for them. And there was a time where, uh, you know, after leaving Egypt, they thought, you know, uh, we we really want some of the things that we had back in Egypt. They were looking back and they began to grumble at Moses, who the Lord had used to rescue them. And in the process, the Lord told them, look, the people, uh, you know, I'm going to give them uh, some meat to eat. I'm going to give them. Uh, I'm going to give them uh, bread to eat. And here are the instructions that they should have in order to have this this meal that I'm going to provide for them. And what God does in his instructions is he tells them that he's going to provide for them, but he's going to provide for them on a daily basis. This doesn't only mean that God will provide for them uh, every single day, but it also means that he's only going to provide for them enough for that day. In the instructions that the Lord gives to Moses to tell the people, he says, here's, here's what you ought to tell them. Uh, tell them that in the, in the morning when they go out, I'm going to cover the land with, uh, with bread. And there's going to be a place where they can go out and they can gather this bread and they can bring it in. Uh, and it will be called manna. 
And they should, each person who gathers the bread should gather as much as they want, as much as they can possibly eat in the day, just get as much as you want. There's no uh, limits of like, oh, you can only have two and you can only have four or like everybody only gets, it's not that. It's the Lord is willing to satisfy the hunger of his people to the maximum in that day. But then the Lord tells them this, you shall not gather enough for the next day. And then the very first time that this happens, uh, the Lord provides the bread and the people go out and they gather enough for the day and then they save some of it for the next day. And they're not supposed to do that. And so the next day they wake up and there's like all these like worms and like nasty parasites in their bread. And they're like, great, we can't eat this. And they throw it out. Because what's, it, what the, the, the thrust of, of what's happening there is the Lord is trying to remind them, you don't need to protect yourself. You don't need to secure yourself. I am your provider. Just like I have rescued you from slavery in Egypt, I will provide for you today. And you have to trust me that I'm going to again provide for you tomorrow. And each day I will provide exactly what you need to the amount that you need. This is the the feast that they are going to commemorate. They are going to Jerusalem and uh, these pilgrims are making their way to celebrate this feast in Psalm 127. This is what a, a, a song of ascent means. As they're going up, they would be going to Jerusalem on their way and around this time of year to celebrate this and commemorate this. And then the... The time uh, they would go out, the people who were living in the city, and they would go and they would live in these little tents. It was kind of like a little camping trip. And they would pretend like they were in the wilderness. Like they were, had just been rescued from Egypt. And they would go through the motions of what it was like. And there you're recognizing that God is your provider. And so as we come to the text this morning, this is uh, the, the theme. This is the way that we want to understand this. I think that this is a common uh, It's an important song for them to sing as they make their way to Jerusalem, remembering that God is the provider. Because isn't that always the case when when we see, when we're on our way to cities and we see the great architecture, we have been to a historic place. Let's say, you know, you've traveled to another country or you've seen another culture in the ruins or maybe you've seen even a, a city that has survived quite a while. And there's so much history there or the way that it's built. And you say like, wow, like look at what these people did. They built something that was so strong, so done so well that it has lasted all of these years. Can you imagine what it is like? And, you know, you get to talking with with people that you're on the trip with. And, and eventually someone says, Look at what we can do. Look at what humans can accomplish when they put their minds to things. This, they, they make this confession. They get to this place where this is kind of the thing that we end up saying. We are seeing the skylines of these different cities and we're like, wow, look at, look at all that we can do. Look at all that we've accomplished. And I think that we've heard this before all the way back in the book of Genesis, right? Wasn't it the Lord who told these people, hey, I want you guys to go and flourish and I, and I want to bless you. And I want you guys to scatter to the ends of the earth and I want you to go and spread out. And they instead decide they're not going to obey. And they instead decide to build their own city and try to make a tower and say, like, we're going to build a, a tower that goes to the heavens. Look at all that we can accomplish. We've got it. That's what they begin to say. Instead of obeying the Lord, they decide we've got this. We're going to take care of our own futures. And this is the the idea that we find, uh, you know, this psalm countering against as these pilgrims make their way into Jerusalem. They look, they see the great city of Jerusalem. They see all of the history there. 
thinking back to the patriarchs, maybe marveling at the work that the Lord has done for many years there. And yet they are reminded through the psalm, through singing this song on the way up, of the Lord's blessing, the Lord's provision, the Lord's faithfulness. And this is contrasted next to uh, human effort. We see that there's human effort, and then we see that there's God's blessing. And so we look at the psalm this morning, starting in verse 1, and we read this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, immediately we find that these are two areas of life that bring most concern to us. Uh, The household, you know, our own uh, provision for our own house, whether that's the the actual physical construction of the house or whether that's the uh, financial provision to pay for the uh, to to kind of meet our budgetary needs, whether that is uh, to meet the emotional needs of the family structure, to find safety and security. There could be any number of things, but there is this focus on the individual family, on the on the group of people, on the physical construction of the house even. And we find here that that is one of the areas. And then we find the other area is the city, the structure, the greater um, area that the house is a part of. And I think that these are obviously two big uh, points of concern for us. First, the house. We know we're worried about what we have going on in our lives, what we are dealing with personally. The things that we are wanting to do or the, the effort that we are putting into life. The jobs that we want to have, the career moves that we want to make, the networking that we are worried about, the grades that we need to achieve in order to get into this school or that school or be accepted by uh, you know, this employer or that employer. There's a number of different ways that we begin to perceive these uh, things, but they are real and major concerns. But Solomon, he makes the effort, not only, he makes this observation, not only uh, in the house, but in the city, that all human effort, all human effort, apart from the Lord, is vanity. It's not helpful. It's not useful. It is going to end in failure. He says this, unless the Lord who builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, I want you to see this. Solomon doesn't say, you shouldn't build houses. He doesn't say, you shouldn't watch the city. He says, if you try to do it on your own, that's when you're in trouble. He doesn't try to put out these different statements saying, oh, you know, that's, that's fruitless. You should never participate in that. You shouldn't invest. It says, he says, you have to do it with the right motives and in the right manner. The Lord has to be a part of this. And essentially what Solomon's opening statement here uh, is a a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, as the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author, the smartest man, the most wise man to ever live, the richest man to ever live, we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he opens the book saying this. He gives you the, the summary 
of what the kind of book of Ecclesiastes is going to be about before he gets going. He says this, I, the preacher, verse 12, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. The smartest man, the most wise man, the richest man, the guy who had the most resources in all of history says, I've done the search. It was not fun. It ended up just being horrible. It ended up being fruitless. It's vanity. It's worthless. It's like, he says, striving after the wind. Who can grasp the wind? No one. It is an empty chase, he says. But at the end of the book, then he turns and he gives us this summary in verse, or chapter 12, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. He says this, after explaining the ways that he searched and all the things that he's done, he, we get to the end of the book. And he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's it. That's what he summarizes it with. Life is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, when he says fear God, of course, he doesn't mean to be afraid in the sense that we would feel terrified, but rather that we would have reverence for, that we would respect that he is God, that he is the creator and we are creation, that we fall under his created order and that we belong to him. It means that we don't act in a way where we are trying to supersede the will of the creator. We're not trying to say, oh, thanks, God, you've got it together. And I know that you're trying to do something, but I got it from here. I'm going to go and do my own thing. And, you know, I want you to bless this mess that I'm about to make. That's not the attitude that he's, uh, he's, he said we shouldn't have that attitude. But rather we should revere the position of God as creator. The relationship and role of God that we has as our redeemer and savior. And we should humbly submit to him. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, the thing that is ironic about fearing God is that when you truly revere him and you recognize that he is your creator, then you are able to draw near to God. So fearing God equals intimacy. You get to become closer to God because of the work that Christ has accomplished at the cross. And so when you are near to the heart of God, then, of course, you seek first his kingdom and you desire to keep his commandments. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's a natural thing. Obviously, if you don't love him, you don't want to keep his commandments. Because they become burdensome and you're like, oh, this is lame. But if you love him, it's, it's a pleasure to keep his commandments. You're happy to keep his commandments. You want to do the things that he's asked you to do. You want to serve him in the ways that he's asked you to serve. And so it's natural for us to live in a way that we can fear God, that we can revere his character, all that he's done for us, and keep his commandments. And this is the, this is the observation that Solomon makes. That all efforts that we make 
that God is not a part of, that he's not directing, are foolish. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's, it's pointless, he says, for a builder to work on a house. It's pointless to put effort into it if the Lord is not a part of it. And then we find the second example. Unless the Lord watches over the city, a watchman stays awake in vain. If you try to work independently from God, if you try to uh, set up these safeguards, you believe yourself to be safe. You think yourself to be safe. But there is not true safety, true security, unless you're trusting in the Lord. Without the Lord, all your efforts, all of your protections that you've put in place are, are pointless. The watchman, he says, may be on the walls of the city patrolling it. He may be keeping watch on the wall. But he himself cannot control the fight. He can't control the attack. He has to be faithful with his job. But the Lord is the one who is ultimately working to bring safety and security. Now, we have to recognize this. This doesn't mean that there can only be these sorts of successes that happen for Christians. He's not saying like, oh, there can never be, uh, you know, a successful atheistic home builder or atheistic, uh, you know, government or city. What he does say, and what the thrust of the passage is, is that any successes that are there are there because God has allowed them to be there. That he is the one contributing. Isn't this what we find the description uh, of, uh, that Paul gives of us of governments in the New Testament? He says that it's God who appoints kings and rulers. And he's the one that makes sure that they are doing their job properly. Sometimes those kings are bad and he deals with them bad, uh, with their bad behavior and brings judgment upon them. And sometimes they're good and he's working through the government to bring justice. But what, if, what he's not, what, what the psalmist is trying to help us understand is that there are other good things that happen out there. And they're not just because all of a sudden someone was successful on their own. It's because God is working in that situation to bring about his will for his people and for maximum human flourishing. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand because we see things from one perspective, one view, one lens. But we see that God is there always working behind the scenes. We just covered this as we went through uh, the book of Ruth. Now, as we come and we look at this statement by Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We see these very practical things. Uh, you know, God has to be a part of this. But here's, here's, I think, what we, need, what we need to understand. What he's getting at is this. What's the point in having something like a, a house or a city if you don't have anyone to enjoy it with? The whole point 
is that when we have things or build things or work on things, they are uh, best enjoyed when we are enjoying them with somebody else. Right? Nobody wants to have like an amazing meal by themselves. Or nobody wants to like have, uh, watch a show that they think is really funny and they're the only one in the room laughing. Like you want to have someone to look over at and laugh with them and they think it's funny and you think it's funny. And it just makes the entire experience more enjoyable. And even bad experiences are better when you have somebody else because then you're like, oh man, isn't this horrible? And they're like, yeah, this is horrible. You, you're, you're like, I'm not alone. Every single time, it's better with somebody else. And so the psalmist is writing and he's saying this. If you're building a house and it's going good, it's good because the Lord's with you. If you're building a house and it's not going so good, but you're still building and the Lord's with you in it, you can still have a good time. You can still enjoy it because you're doing it together with the Lord. He is with you. He is participating. If you get to the end and you have something and you have no one to share it with, the Lord is not there with you, then you just have something that's empty and you're not satisfied. You've built your identity around being a house builder and not building it with the Lord. Uh, You've built your identity around trying to find safety and security in these other things. But if you've done it without Christ, when you get to the end, then it's like, okay, now what? What next? The psalmist says basically this. There is no life apart from God. You can go through the motions, you can build these things, but as you get to the end... It will not be the abundant life that Jesus tells us he has come to give us. Now, as we move on, uh, we find the reason that we often put our identity into these things apart from God. Verse 2, it is vain that you rise up early and you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. So here's the reason we're told uh, why we often get into the position where we're trying to build the house uh, without the Lord being a part of it. Here's the reason that why we start to watch the city without the Lord watching over the city with us. We're staying awake. We're going through the motions. We're working hard. It's because this verse 2. We are eating the bread of anxious toil. Eating the bread of anxious toil. What this means is that we are continually coming to this table, partaking of a bread that is anxiety. We're coming there and saying like, oh man, I need sustenance. I need to keep going. And the thing that's keeping us going is anxiety. That we're worried. We have fears. We're not, we're not sure how things are going to work out. We're worried about what the house is going to look like or what our budget is going to look like or what, all of these different things. We're worried that people are going to attack us. And so instead of resting, instead of being prepared, instead of working uh, to God's glory, we just saying, oh, I'm getting tired. And then we come back to the bread of anxious toil. We come to feed at something that creates more problems again and again and again. And the more you come back, the more anxiety you eat. And so you go back and you, you have this attitude of anxiety and worry and fear, mistrust. And this is how people turn into uh, unhealthy workaholics. Because they're trying to get ahead. They're trying to justify their position in life. They're trying to say, oh, I've got this. I'm, I'm going to handle this. I'm going I'm to I'm outdo everybody else. I'm going to show that I'm the best. 
I'm going to do what it takes. And so it rolls into what Solomon describes here as rising early to work and continuing late into the night. And Solomon says, if you do that, and you're doing it from the, from the source of eating the bread of anxious toil, then it, your work is going to be vain. Now, here's what we need to understand. This doesn't mean you shouldn't be a diligent worker. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, get up early. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't stay up late. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's saying here is if you were if you were doing that from the motive and the basis of anxiousness, of the anxious toil, if you're coming from anxiety and worry and fear there, then that's when it's wrong. But Jesus instead says, I am the bread of life. I am the one who will truly satisfy you. And if you are working from a position of serving God for his glory and you are working to be a faithful steward and you're coming to him. There's not a parameter for how long you should stay up at night or how early you should wake up. You should be faithful like Jesus was faithful. You just shouldn't come to the, to the table of anxiety to be filled. You should come to the bread of life. And then when you have that attitude, when you have that mentality, when Jesus says, it's time to go to sleep, and you say, I've got a whole bunch of work ahead of me, then you can just say, okay, Jesus says it's time to go to sleep. I'm just going to go to sleep because I'm not worried about what's in front of me. I'm not worried. I don't have anxiety and fear about the things that I'm about to step into or what people are saying about me. Solomon says this, he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay, I want you to notice two things. He gives sleep. He provides rest. He gives to those who feel that they have to work. He gives them the opportunity. Why? Because he calls them his beloved. It means that you're already accepted. You're already a part of his family. You're already adopted. It's not he gives to like his workers or his servants. He gives to his beloved sleep. You're already, you're standing in the gospel. You already are accepted by him. So you don't have to do more things to prove that you belong. You already have a home. He already says you're in. Go ahead, rest. So you don't need to worry about it. And the only way that we, the reason that we begin to worry about it is because we don't believe ourselves to be accepted. We start looking that other people don't accept us. But the gospel says other people don't accept us anyways. They don't even accept Jesus. He was perfect. If they hated him, he's gonna, they're going to hate us. You work to please Christ. And he says you, that you're accepted. You're his beloved. So he says rest. Rest. When it's time to work hard, work hard. When it's time to rest, rest. You don't have to prove yourself to him. He gives to his beloved sleep. You're already in. Don't stress, rest. Okay? This is what he gets to. And the reason that he does this, and the reason that we should sleep, is this. What happens, what is your greatest fear when you're sleeping? 
right? Nowadays, it's like you got a roommate and they're going to post an Instagram of you sleeping, okay? Like one of the filters and you're going to be like, you have your arms all up in the air and, you know, all, all funny. Okay, maybe that's a real fear. But when you're sleeping, like, right, uh, it can be like all sorts of crazy stuff that can happen to you because you're not aware. You're unconscious. Someone, someone could come in. You're exposed. You're weak. You're not in control. You're not aware of your surroundings. Uh, you know, anyone could come in and steal from you. Someone could come into your house. There's, there's uh, innumerable things that could happen. It could be a spider. Real, real fear. I know. I know. Real fear. It could be a spider. Worst case scenario. You, you guys all laugh, but wait till, wait till you're married and then your spouse finds, oh, I think there's a spider. You're tearing up the bedroom for two hours to find something that's not there. Okay? It's, it's a real thing. The spider fear. Don't you worry. Whatever it is, it's in that moment of sleep. He gives us sleep so we can rest. So we can specifically say, it's time for me to be weak. It's time for me to be exposed. It's time for me to not be in control. It's time for me to be unaware of my surroundings. And it's precisely that in our weakness that God is strong. And so again, weakness is the way. When you are weak, God is strong. Jesus said, I will be strong in your weakness. When we sleep, when we rest, especially when we have worries, when we have anxiety and we have fears... And we don't just say, oh, I got to go get some rest because I'm tired. But when we say, I've got to stop now, even though I have things to do, even though I have things to work on, even though my flesh wants to like instead take a break and go do these other things or like distract myself. When instead, when we rest and we give that time away to restore our bodies through sleep, what we do is we demonstrate our trust that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things. You say, you got this. I'm going to go to sleep. I don't know what's going to happen while I'm asleep. I might oversleep my alarm. All sorts of crazy things might happen. But while I'm asleep, you are going to hold the world together. You're going to continue the bodily functions that you have started in me. You are going to sustain Everything around me. It's in that sleep that we give our our confession of control to Jesus. We say, you've got this. He gives to his beloved sleep. It was Jesus who reminds us that he is indeed the one in control. That it is he who is working these things. Together for his glory. And he specifically tells us uh, in the Gospel of Matthew that we ought not to worry. That we ought not to have anxiety and, and fears. Matthew chapter 6 verse 26. He says this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Right? He says... The birds, they don't try to do anything to like make food. It's like they're just cruising around, having a good time. And yet they have food. They're not out there like there's this little weird bird farm planting seeds. 
Now it's going to be a meme. Dang it. He says this, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? In fact, if you're, you know, studies say if you have anxiety, you're probably losing life. Your, your body's getting worn down more. You're not gaining, like you're not even staying at the same level of life. Which of you, by being anxious, can get, add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Right? So he says, look, even Solomon, the guy who's writing this, who clearly understands what we're saying, says, he's the richest man. He had all that. And he still even wasn't like, as awesome looking as these lilies of the field. The Lord is providing, even though these lilies, they're just doing nothing. They're just hanging out there. But they are glorifying God in their uh, creative state. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you little face? So he's saying, like, look, the Lord takes care of like the grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow. It just has a short lifespan. How much more? How more important are you than a bird? How much more important are you than grass? The Lord's going to take care of you. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Don't be anxious about what you should eat, drink or wear. The common fears. Right? That's right there. That is the word for everybody. If you were poor, eat, drink, wear. Like I, I need, I need to have clothes because it's freezing. It's hot. I need my clothes are running out. I need something to eat because I don't have resources. The Lord sees each person, right? But then we think like, oh, okay. Well, I have enough to eat, drink, and worry, or I have enough. To eat, drink, and wear. Right? Because I have like a little bit more money. So like these aren't even worries I have that I have to deal with, right? No. Because if, if you are if you have like a little bit of money, you've ever been invited to to like a dinner party, you're like, what am I gonna wear? What I there's nothing for me to eat there. Like I'm on this specific diet. Like you're already worried about something else. You have another level of anxieties and worries. Not a joke, for real. Like these things are common to all of man. It's the it's the totality of who we are. We're always worried about these similar things. There's always something there that we find to worry about. Even if it's if we feel like that need is met, then we find another way to worry about the same thing. And so here, God doesn't lay lay out these specific rules for like here are the dedicated hours of when you can work and when you can't work and this and that. His main thrust is this. Don't, don't get up early and don't stay up late because you're worried. Don't be fearful. Don't operate out of that. If you're going to stay up late and you're going to wake up early, do it out of the rest that you find in Christ. That you're working to steward all that he's given you faithfully. But rest in him. If you're doing it too frequently, you're not doing you're not resting in him because he gives his beloved sleep. Now we find in verse three, quickly this. We first see the human efforts drawn out in 
verses 1 and 2. But now we find Solomon highlighting the belief that God blesses his people. He gives to his people uh, from his own will. He gives them blessings that are not brought about by their own uh, ingenuity. He says, you, you can try to build a house, but here... Within this belief, it is God who is seen as the creator of life. And especially in uh, that, that we've seen even just in the story of Ruth. God is the one who closes the womb and God is the one who opens the womb back again. He is the one who determines who is made and when they're made and how and all, like all that stuff. He is the one who is overseeing all life. And so now we come and we see the, Solomon's description of not only uh, is, it, is human effort vain, but he says here, God is the one who brings blessing. God is the one who brings uh, value to these people. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so this would be seen as God, who is the one who is gifting and giving children. He is the one who opens the womb. He is the one who uh, brings these blessings to families. What's being said here is this. Children aren't an achievement. They're a reward, right? That's how he describes this. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. They're not an achievement unlock. But rather, they are a blessing. Something that God gives, right? This is important for us to understand, especially because we live in a day and age where it's countercultural to believe that children are a blessing. It's like, ah, oh, you know. They're crazy and you shouldn't have too many kids and this and that. But the, but the scriptures tell us that children are a blessing. They're, uh, they are heritage. And they are given by God. And so we love kids. We celebrate kids. We want to have, you know, uh, like kids running around and enjoying them. And that's the future of the church. And that's the Lord uh, working. And then he says this. He, he describes it this way. And I think it's interesting how he does this. He says this. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What is being said here is this. When you have kids, they're like this little quiver. When you see kids from another family, when you experience kids, they are like these little arrows in the hands of a warrior. Right? If a warrior has empty hands, you're not very afraid of him. He's like, oh, I got a bow, but I got no arrows. That's not very helpful. It's like, great, what are you going to do? All I got to do is stay a little bit like at a distance from you. But as soon as you got to arrows, then you're like, oh, shoot. Okay, time to retreat. I got to get out of here. The thought is this. The children provide a defense. A way to protect the family, especially as uh, parents get older. They protect 
by being faithful, by, uh, by operating here as faithful stewards of all that God has given, by living for God's glory. Uh, but he even gets a little bit more specific here in verse 5. He says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, we know a little bit about the gate because we just talked about the gate, right? Uh, a couple weeks ago. At the gates of cities, what would happen? There would be official business that would take place. They would come and uh, it would be kind of the court of law for a city. And so at the gate of the city, the, if you had business to do, if you wanted to sell something, if you had to make a legal transaction, if you wanted to uh, make an accusation against somebody or if somebody was defaming your name, you would come to the gate with the rest of the elders of the city. You kind of have like this little court. But beyond that, it would be at the gate where you would meet with opposing armies. If an army was coming in uh, there and you would meet at the gate of the city to kind of have the, the leaders of these armies talk and figure out what are the terms and how are we going to, how are we going to operate in this battle. And so what's being said is that, this, that these children who are like these arrows in the hands of a warrior, they are operating and designed in a way where they can go to the gate on behalf of the parents. They can go to the gate on behalf of the family and they can do battle there, not in a, in a physical sense, is what it's saying, but rather you can, they can defend uh, on these civil grounds. They can defend uh, in these legal matters so that the family doesn't have someone take advantage of them or, or lose out. They see that justice could be accomplished. Now again, this is not to say that the Lord isn't working. It's easy to say, oh, I have kids. So they went in the gate and they did the thing for me. But rather they are a blessing, a heritage, a reward. And then again, working with the Lord. Accomplishing all that God has set them out to do. He lists out some of these things. And so as we see these different areas, we see the home, the house that is being built, as we see the city, as we see the family unit. It's easy to kind of look at the, the problems that these uh, different spheres of life bring. It's easy to look at the worries and anxieties and fears that we see and say, oh, I could fix that. I could fix that issue if I had some money. Oh, I have the money. I can fix that problem right now. In my house, in the city, I can throw money at this or that. Or I have a great idea. Oh, I know how to fix this. I can be the solution. It's easy for us to think in that way. But the Lord doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. He works to accomplish His will. And this is why we always want to say that we want to be a part of what he's doing. We don't want to do our own thing and invite him into it. We want to discover what he's doing and work with him. We want to join him. When we do what he's doing, we will always be successful. But when we try to operate on our own, we're exalting our plans above God's plans. Now, this happens, 
This work happens in us when we work from rest. When we work from His character with the filling of His Holy Spirit. We don't have this innately by ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The way that we live, the way that we accomplish this is God's Holy Spirit working within us, giving us the desire to serve him, to live for him, to work alongside him, and then equipping us to do it. You need both. You can't say, oh, like I've got the idea and why don't you come in and give me the ability to accomplish the idea. He has to give you the desire to do his will and then he equips you to do his will. I think that this is a stroke of genius because, one, we don't get to take any credit at all. So you can't say, like, oh, I did a great job. You can say, like, the, the Lord, like, opened this door and then he empowered me to do this. So he gets all the credit. But then it also uh, makes it so that everyone is without excuse saying, like, oh, I'm not equipped to do that. You don't get to have that excuse because if he gives you the opportunity and the will to do it, then he's going to equip you to do it. So nobody says, oh, I'm not ready for that. It's like nobody's ready for that. That's why the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you, uh, gives you the ability to accomplish it. It's easy for us to have excuses. But the Lord just gets rid of all of them. He says, I'm going to give you everything you need. No excuses. When we act in our own strength, it's just spinning your own wheels. It's super like just frustrating when you're trying to work on your own, when you're trying to accomplish your own plan. But when we bring the Holy Spirit into our lives, when we say, Spirit, I'm here to be led by you today. I want your filling, your empowerment. I want you to do a good work and, and send me out to accomplish whatever you want for your glory. When we open ourselves up like that, then we become super efficient in how we live because we only do the things that he wants us to do. If you operate from the basis of the flesh, the results aren't going to be very good. If you try to gather more manna than you're supposed to gather, you're in trouble. You're just going to have stinky worms the next morning. Nobody wants stinky worms. It's the worst. But if you gather enough for that day, and then the next morning you go out saying, Lord, I need food today. I'm going to gather out what you've given me to the best of my ability. I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to do what you want me to do. Then you're going to be refreshed. You're going to go out in his power and you're going to have his results. That's what we want. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. So sleep, rest. Don't come for the bread of anxious toil. But instead, come to the table of grace where there is the bread of life. Abundant life that is promised to us by Christ. 
Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your faithfulness, that you had given us the opportunity to draw near to you. That you've opened the doors for us to receive all that you have for us. And that, Lord, we don't have to stress out. We don't have to have worries and anxieties and fears. Lord, we pray that you would put these things in perspective in our lives. So when we see the deadlines approaching or when we see uh, you know, passive aggressive emails coming in from colleagues and friends or when we see the look of disappointed uh, co-workers or parents or whatever, where we want to stand fast in what you believe uh, and what we believe that you've said about us in your word. What you've demonstrated at the cross, that we belong to you, that we're accepted by you, that you cannot, Lord, when we stand in, in, uh, your, in your righteousness, you cannot be any happier with us than you already are. We have the fullness of your love. And so, Lord, we want to celebrate your faithfulness. That you have been faithful because you knew that there would be times when we would be unfaithful. And that you knew that that sin would have to be paid for. And so, Lord, we cling to you. We look to the cross and we see that as you uh, humbled yourself, you became a man in, <clears throat> and lived a perfect life in our place. Going to the cross, paying for our sin, dying our death. Defeating Satan so that we could be rescued from bondage. Lord, we don't want to go out into the wilderness and wonder where our provision comes from. We know that it comes from you. And we see, Lord, that you have justified us. As God has resurrected you from the dead, we find justification. And that we, or we have new life in you. And we look to you as God has given you the name that is above every name. You've been exalted that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. And so, Lord, we don't want to wait until that day when everybody confesses that as a fact. But, Lord, we want to confess that this morning as your children. As being members of the household of faith. Lord, be Lord over our lives Rule and reign over our sinful hearts. Convict us of sin. Bring us to repentance and give us that new and abundant life that you have promised. Work in our hearts now, Jesus. We love you. Amen.